Wolf and Zoe. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 526. Jason Lingren is with me, and we are honored to have the return of Fortune to St. Germain. Uh, we're basically going to be covering what's happened <laughs> to us, if I want to put it in a nutshell. What's interesting is when I received the breakdown bullets to lead the conversation from Fortune, he actually recognized what I've been saying, that my lifetime is a perfect encapsulation of one portion of the fall. And he marks it as 1963 to present, as I have so many times, often associating a month before I was alive, uh, the Kennedy nonsense as one of the kickoff points. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a hot good morning. Fortune to St. Germain, how are you? Today is a great day, and it's a great pleasure to be here, as always. Definitely the honor is ours. Do we want to cue anything up before we jump in, or do you want to jump in? I come to you, as always, to speak of alchemy, infinity, and miracles. Today's interview is about the great experiment, the United States, from individual freedom to world communism. Therefore, buckle your seatbelts for this is Mr. Toad's wild ride. Okay, you have the days, so go where you will, Fortune. The Renaissance awakens Western civilization with Greco-Roman ideals. The 1700s is the Enlightenment, the great age of reason. This era is the birth and youth of the middle class with growth and optimism everywhere. In the latter part of the 18th century, London becomes the world's first metropolis since Rome and surpasses the eternal city in size and culture. There is a luster to life. Art and elegance dominate, and honor and reputation are everything. This was a slower and serious world with great cooperation and community. Amongst all this, the U.S. is born accidentally and incidentally. The new republic has a small government and no taxation. The populace are not subjects, but sovereign citizens. This age, it harkens back to Grecian beauty, which means virtue and excellence. We talk about Mr. Crow's grand tour where people who wanted to be educated and genteel went on a tour of Europe. White powdered wigs, makeup faces, and satin and silk clothing. They were proud. They had cleaned up the world and dragged it out of the middle and dark ages. And amongst all this, the United States is born. All right, so we're pushing up to the beginning of the United States, and from the previous statement, the ideas that founded us are much different. People are human beings, living men and women, and they're sovereign. Uh, and as you mentioned, there's no taxation. You want to pick up from there? We have the Continental Congress and the Founding Fathers, and these are people that came together uh, with many different ideas and different agendas some good, some bad, as always. So amongst all of this, America is negotiated and born. And for the first time in history, we say, you become a sovereign citizen where you consent to be governed and that the smallest government is the best government. The government that governs best is that which governs least. 
So among all of this, when the Republic is born based upon democratic ideals uh, from Rome and Athens, we have a Scottish historian named Alexander Teitler who gives us a warning. A democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves largesse from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates, promising the most benefits from the public treasury, with the result that a democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policy, always followed by a dictatorship. The average age of the world's greatest civilizations has been 200 years. These nations have progressed through this sequence, from bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to apathy, from apathy to dependence, from dependence back into bondage. And this observation is echoed in the book, The Fate of Empires by Sir John Baggett Glubb. And amongst all of this, we, we begin our journey into the, the first brave new world, into the great experiment and uh, uncharted territory. And as our friend Professor Teitler gave the warning, through the latter part of the 1700s, we are told to beware the Illuminists. There, there were secret societies that were infiltrating various governments with their own ideas, trying to work things out behind the scenes, chicana, intrigue, plots. But this is nothing new because this has always happened through history. There have always been powers behind the scenes. There have always been deals, many times deals of stupidity and selfishness, which have been both in the same package. So when we talk about deals or backroom deals, they're really not conspiracies. They're just people getting together and making deals which are good for themselves. Many times they are stupid because they, they lead down the road to things that are not good. We have the red eminence, which means he is a person of power that you will see standing next to the king and you know who and what he is. You will have the gray eminence, the power behind the throne that you will never, ever know or see. And if you meet him, you will not know he is the gray eminence. One of those people was my grandfather, Alexander de Saint Germain. Uh, and it doesn't mean that you're a bad person. There are many times the red or gray eminences have been good people. So uh, like any government, it depends on the integrity of the people who are ruling. But now we talk about beware the Illuminists and all the pamphlets and newspapers. They spoke about this and the warnings and these people with their nefarious principles. And this is the beginning. And in the beginning, there, becomes a, there begins a steady devolution and eventually dry rot. So from the moment the United States and its democracy slash republic has been created, there has been from that time a chipping away at the values and principles from its birth. 
and we go to Washington's farewell warning. No foreign entanglements, which should have applied to this day, because if we get involved in foreign entanglements with the European powers, we get drawn back into who and what they were, and our values would be corrupted. So once Washington leaves, uh, the isolationist principles of America and its divine and sovereign values start to be chipped away at. So you have a bullet point where you label it as in the beginning at 1776. So many people in the conspiratorial community, as they're called, mark the beginning of the so-called Bavarian Illuminati at 1776, almost as if it was a front for the date of the supposed establishment of America. Do you see any correlation there? There were people at the Congress that were Masons, but the Masons had not been totally taken over yet. George Washington had been warned, and he said that they would keep an eye, and he did not think that they were a threat. Uh, Just as we talked about the Illuminists that everyone was worried about in Europe, and the Illuminists did play a role in the French Revolution. They had the, the secret power or the hidden hand. In the time of ancient Rome, there were the Piso family. There were there was an army behind the emperor. There were bankers. So when you got to the throne and you were supposedly some support, so some some kind of absolute supreme or divine ruler, sometimes all three titles in one, you still had to contend with the powers behind the throne: a priesthood, a military, bankers, an aristocracy. So uh, the moment you got there, uh, these positions of great power are often hot seats, and you have to walk a a careful line and and placate and make sure that certain people's palms are greased and certain people are taken care of, because the people who helped you into that position can easily help you out. But the U.S. was born on noble principles. And it, it was not a conspiracy. And very, very soon, uh, as the great uh, Mr. and Professor Crow will ask the next question, we will go into where uh, things started to go wrong and, and what started to happen to lead us down this road. Okay. I'm not sure if you're going to pick up at 1776 or 1812, but to put perspective, would it be safe to say that the Illuminists were one of the driving forces that uh, took the heads off the royalty in France? There were Illuminists, there were uh, bankers, there were the English were involved. And remember, the, the first communist revolution is the French Revolution. So that happens uh, shortly after the American Revolution, which is the basically the only peaceful revolution in world history. So you have the French Revolution, and then uh, a century and a half uh, later, you have the Russian Revolution, which are both, are both communist revolutions. And I give a warning to everyone listening. The people that rose up to take power in the French and Russian Revolution were not the people that you wanted rising up. So when revolutions happen, they always, they almost always the rabble, not the people that you want rising up and defending their rights, 
but the people that come in and cause trouble and come in power vacuums. And for those of you listening, once the revolution happens, everything stops. Food stops, water stops, delivery stops, banking stops. So at the time of the French and the Russian revolutions, people ran out of bread, people ran out of food, the power stopped. Banks stopped lending, people start leaving the country trying to get their money out. Switzerland becomes a banking haven uh, because everyone is trying to get out of France. Not just the aristocrats, but the middle class who had worked by the sweat of their brow uh, to to earn their money and their bread and their keep. So this is disastrous for France. The United States was a different and the only type of revolution that that came from nonviolent people. Uh, so when we say accidental and incidental, it's the only time uh, in 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 history where people there was not blood running in the streets and that speaks a great deal to the people who did found uh the great land and the great experiment but then we have the war of 1812 which is the first secession crisis which almost no one remembers or knows now i was there so i can tell you the new england states threatened to secede if the war was not over and this is where um, Britain gets their hooks into the United States. We start heavily trading with Britain. They start lending money. They start buying debt. And here is where it starts to go wrong. The foreign entanglements begin, and Britain gains a foothold into the United States. And we must remember, America grows rich from riding the coattails of the British Empire. The 1800s show us that Britain starts to gain a greater and greater alliance through trade with the United States. So what we see really is not conspiracy. It's a deal, and everyone knows it's ha happening. You just don't see it from now because we're looking back, and everyone then knew it was happening, and most people did not have a problem with it because there was money involved. So money talks, unfortunately. Uh, we do have a warning in 1826 um, when Captain Morgan, who is a Mason, uh, warns that the Masons have become too powerful and that they are taking over. And this also has to do with the British. So we, we know evil triumphs because good men do nothing. Mason, uh, Cap the Captain Morgan is murdered and the Masons involved are tried and found guilty. He tips off the world that the Masons are growing too strong as a power and that the British are involved. But Captain Morgan is a forgotten name in, in our history. And now we see, we see where the British foothold begins and we start marching forward. Professor Crow, what is your next question? Jason, the mics are a little wonky. Did I hear you when I jumped in last time? Did you have something that you were about to say? I had a question. Are there any names that we would know in the historical narrative of the Illuminists that you mentioned who are working behind the scenes at the fledgling country? Well, some of those Illuminists were at the Continental Congress. I cannot prove it for sure, but 
they say that um, they, they say that Ben Franklin and uh, Thomas Jefferson may, may have been part of that. Uh, we, we will never know because it was a secret society and they were not going to advertise who and what they were in their fledgling years as now, uh, at this time in our history in 2023, you know who they are because they are in the forefront of everything. James Shelby Downard may shed some light on the Franklin idea because I believe it's Downard, if I'm not mistaken, associates Franklin with the Hellfire Club and all kinds of occult goings on. But that had brought us where you had brought us to was the War of 1812. So between 1812 and the Civil War, which is about the bridge we're about to gap here, we've done legal episodes specifically KL, showing a side of the Civil War that I don't think most people think about. I think most people have been shown in school. This was wholly about slavery. Slavery, you know, all race ideas is what was put up front, uh, and it conceals so much. So I can't add much, Fortune. I can't keep up with you here. If you want to pick up at 1812 and move towards the Civil War, it's all you. Well, between the Civil War, we have a very, very refreshing moment. We have Colonel Jackson, Old Hickory, the hero of Tippecanoe, as you remember from history, those of you that are old enough, the campaign slogan, Tippecanoe and Tyler too. And the, everyone went for him because he was a Southerner, he was a war hero, and he was not part of the Eastern elite establishment. He was alive at the founding of the um, government, the U.S., and people considered him as the last ties to liberty because uh, at the time of Jackson, people thought the federal government was growing too strong, too fast, and it needed to be curbed. So we have Colonel Jackson coming in, and he is a very refreshing figure because he is a down-to-earth man. It is the only time in U.S. history that there was no debt. Colonel Jackson was a very strong human being. He was a military man. He was not much in for backroom deals, uh, which he said he never got involved in politics because at the time of the American Revolution and afterwards, everything was a backroom deal. And, and uh, he, he was not uh, into that. So he went into the military because the military was cut and dry. This is it. This is what you do. That's what we're about. He abolishes the second federal bank. There are two assassination attempts on his life. And on his grave, his epitaph is, I killed the bank. So President Jackson was strong enough to uh, muscle everyone around him to do the right thing. And when FDR became president, he said the last president with any clout was Colonel Jackson, Andrew Jackson. And Andrew Jackson took a great deal of heat because uh, they called his wife backwards Rachel. And as strong a man as he was uh, at his inauguration day, people had posters saying backwards Rachel about his wife. And one man called out something very bad. So Jackson got down off the podium, climbed down on the trellis, punched the man in the nose and uh, knocked him cold, and then climbed back up the trellis to make his inauguration speech. 
Uh, that is the kind of man that we are talking about. So when you came before Colonel Jackson, uh, what you saw was what you got, and uh, you had to watch your words because dueling was still legal in the South, and Colonel Jackson wouldn't wait for the duel. He would just jump over the table and give you the beating on his own. And uh, we also have the great Senator uh, John C. Calhoun, who was a vice president with John Quincy Adams. He was one of the 10 greatest senators ever. He was the voice of the South and a great brinksman, a master diplomat. So whenever the South was being dishonored or bullied by the North, they could send John C. Calhoun up to Washington to talk to the president by his prestige, by by the honor and the majesty this man had, and by sitting down and saying to the governments that had been, uh, this is not something that we want, and you don't want a war, and you don't want this strife either, and Calhoun would always go up and was a favorite guest uh, and make his point clear, and the North would back down. So the... Uh, History writing, as we move up to the Civil War, they tried to discredit Calhoun because he represented the slave states. They tried to say he was the man most responsible for the Civil War, even though he had not lived to see the Civil War. But with John C. Calhoun's brinksmanship, the Civil War probably would have never broken out. And we go further into history. Proceed, Professor Crow. All right, I'm going to jive one more time at the Civil War before we move forward, but I'm going to ask Jason, is there anything you want to get in here? How much did international bankers try and interfere with the United States to get a war going? Well, that is a great question. Uh, One of the Rothschilds does visit uh, Newport, Rhode Island, which was the colony of the richest, the summer colony, and he comes before the Civil War, and a little before him, we have the arrival of a man, a German Jew named Schoenberg, who becomes August Belmont, which is Belmont means Schoenberg, and Belmonte or Beaumont in uh, French. And he is a Rothschild agent. But these are bankers that come to lend money. And uh, that's why we say never a borrower nor a lender be. Uh, then you can't get into trouble. So when you borrow too much, you are in beholding to others that lend. And yes, Abraham Lincoln was very, very concerned about the powers uh, that had been foreign that were trying to spurn on conflict uh, because the greatest money, as we know, that is ever made is made in wartime. And war debt always has to be paid. Because if you don't pay it, you will never get another cent and you may have a second war on your hands. So war debt is war debt is a sure thing and it's made at very, very high interest. But as we know, or as you are learning, that it really isn't a conspiracy. Uh, it's a deal. And deals are being made all the time. And as we move into the Civil War, this was Lincoln's war and he provoked it. So everything you know about the Civil War in the official history is a lie. And the victor wrote the history. 
there were five presidents still alive, uh, four in the North and Tyler in the South when the war broke out. And they all denounced Lincoln as a scoundrel who said he would be mocked for the ages as a blackguard, meaning a black god, because this war did not have to happen. The idea that everything you know about the Civil War that we were taught in school in the Western world is a lie is backed up by the KL rundown of legal ideas. Anyhow, please continue. We, we have the war breaking out. The South has no choice. John C. Calhoun is gone. They can't send him up anymore. Lincoln provoked the states. He wanted the war. It's over tariffs, just as the American Revolution broke out taxation. The South felt it was not getting its fair share. There are even some annals, which most of you will have never, ever heard this before, that the South said that they will abolish slavery if the federal government buys the slaves for them, from them. They will set the slaves free and uh, if the federal government just pays for them. Now, let's just be a little honest about something here as we are speaking, because I think that the Crow listenership is the greatest and most educated in the world. So when we say do not send your children to Skewel, S-K-E-W-E-L, yes, send them to listen to Crow 7-7, which I am not the only one who says that. So parents, forget Skewel and send them to listen to Crow because... One another reason why slavery peters out is because it becomes harder and harder for the banks and insurance companies to collateralize the slaves. So it is Christianity and capitalism that are actually the death blow to slavery. Whereas once slavery is abolished in the United States, it still goes on in the Ottoman Empire where there were far more white people ever sold into slavery than blacks that crossed the ocean to the Americas. And one thing we must remember, there is nothing in the world that is more profitable than slavery. Once you buy the slave, it's yours for life, and the person works for you. For the, so uh, unfortunately, these are truths that no one likes to uh, examine. And we look back at this era and we fail to realize that there is slavery going on in many forms in a quarter, 25% of the world. And everyone still turns a blind eye to that. But it is democracy, Christianity, and capitalism that does vanquish slavery. Abraham Lincoln only frees the slaves because he hopes they will rise up against their masters and help the North to win the war. And once the North wins the war, something very different happens. They pass an amendment, a state can no longer secede. It is illegal for a state to secede. There is no more allodial title, uh, and the Lincolnists say no more of this bull crap where so you say something is mine and I, you can't take it, which is what the United States was founded on. So a lodial title becomes almost impossible to get after the Civil War, which means that you own the land, you do not have to be taxed on it, and it cannot be taken from you. And federal law now becomes more important than state law, whereas before the Civil War, it was state law that, was, that trumped 
the federal law. And we have our good friend um, Ulysses S. Grant that in 1871 forms the Corporation of the United States. For people who want to catch up on other aspects of this, there are legal episodes. If you contact Rose, uh, we can steer you into them that basically cover legal and monetary, excuse me, aspects of the Civil War, which basically say the exact same thing. As we move forward, I'm going to consider that maybe we've wrapped up the Civil War. If that's not true, then let's go back and wrap up the Civil War. But I've got to say, Fortune, when I saw your bullet points, I felt better about what Jason and Rose and I had done because your bullet points represent the places that we had picked out as crucial to what's happened here. So as we move forward, is there anything more to do with the Civil War or shall we move on to what I would imagine is an event that makes 9-11 look like kindergarten well, we, we, we go, remember, this is all through. It's a steady devolution. So 1860, 1880, 1900, uh, roughly in those years, three presidents are assassinated. And we are here because we all value the truth. So I will quote President Garfield, who said, the truth does set us free, but it makes us all very miserable first. So Lincoln is, two of the people behind his assassination was Stanton and Johnson, and there were other people involved for various reasons. But we look at 1860, 1880, and 1900. Lincoln's son, Robert Lincoln, was at each of the three of those assassinations, and they were all over money. Just as Julius Caesar was assassinated based upon a currency reform. Lincoln is no bargain because he truly is a jackal and a scoundrel and suspends many of the laws and overrides them that the, uh, con- you know, the Constitution and he suspends habeas corpus and, and one army fighting another is also a, you know, a break of posse comitatus. So many of Lincoln's edicts or what do they call them, presidential decrees uh, were overturned after his death by the Supreme Court. So we have three presidents that are assassinated, Lincoln, Garfield in the 1880s, and McKinley. Garfield and McKinley are truly very, very good people, but they do make comments about the powers that are coming in, and one only whispers their name for fear that he will be overheard. And we move further and further to the 20th century based upon the banking trust and uh, other money powers that come in and start to take over and co-opt our republic or our democracy, whatever you'd like to term it. And as we move towards 1900, let us remember that life speeds up because of the motor and electricity. The bank trust, the most hated trust in the United States, co-ops the 20th century and starts taking over the government. The 20th century was supposed to be and should have been a continuation of the Victorian era. But Teddy Roosevelt comes in and makes the U.S. into an empire. 
which Woodrow Wilson a few years later solidifies and does even worse. And that brings us up to Mr. Crow and uh, Mr. Jason's 1913, where they're going to tell you what happens in 1913. (laughs) Jason? Well, that would be the founding of the Federal Reserve. Correct. And also that put the chains on this country forever because now the debt slavery is complete. And what, what else is passed in the same year as the Federal Reserve? Something that is totally illegal according to the Constitution and the founding, the uniform commercial code in each of the original colonies, the founding states. What other organization is founded in that year? Uh, 13, let's see. So, well, we've got the, the, I know it's not the one you're looking for, but we have the Bureau of uh, the one that counts people. I don't know. You're losing me. The collection agency for the Fed is... Oh, the IRS. The IRS is founded in 1913. And also, new births quit getting, right at this time, the Bureau of Census, right at this time that you're referencing, new births stopped around this era being written into Bibles. You see, my dear friends, we are going towards the brink. You read history books. Many people will not agree with this. But this was a very beautiful world. It was a slower world. You had to have supper with your family. There was no radio. There was no uh, television. You had to make your entertainment in the evening. Life was more of a communal society. It was collective. We were moving in one direction, and uh, it was a largely majority agreement of that direction. It was the 17 and 1800s that moved us further than anything else in history. The middle class was born in the 1700s, and it became incredibly strong in the 1800s. Here in London, as well as the United States, a man could support a wife and children in in his own home, and he could have cook, maid, and nanny. So your money went a great deal farther. And people were so proud of themselves because the world had been moved forward and there was such optimism. They didn't understand that they were being guided to the brink, that they were being herded at that time. And we are going to come across a little later on the founding of the charitable organizations, Carnegie, uh, Rockefeller and many others with their nefarious agendas that were behind the scenes that would steer the world in a totally different direction than it ha- it was supposed to go, than it should have gone, because the people that existed then were much more trusting people. Uh, they were naive. Uh, they were a more genteel people. So they could not have imagined the horrors that were coming with World War I, the Great War in 1914. So as we move in from what I have picked up in all my years of learning, I would mark in the mod- what I would call the modern era, including World War I, as this is the major turning point and the things that are put into motion and the change of the world that you were just describing a more dignified world, a more serious world, a more grown-up world, 
this is the time where that's going to begin to go away. For us who live now, we have a version, a much, much smaller version, a 1,000th version in an event like 9-11 maybe, but it's not the same, nor, nor is the scope the same. And that's the way that I view, with my limited view, where you're about to go with World War I, the Great War. The Great War was a great tragedy for everyone because it just showed the powers that be, the people at the top, how readily a generation of young men marched into the jaws of death, how readily they volunteered to become meat for the grinder. And unfortunately, the churches in all of the countries helped perpetrate that by encouraging their, their youth to line up and go to something that they did not understand. Events were speeding up towards this point, but it did not have to happen. When Britain made its slam dunk in the Boer War in South Africa by stealing minerals and, and all different sorts of things down there, gold and diamonds, they were convinced that uh, World War I or the Great War would be an easy slam dunk for them. Now, one thing that we are missing now that I failed to miss uh, and tell you, through the 1800s, we have assassination attempts by the anarchists. Nobody had ever heard of the communists. The anarchists are supposed to be um, enemies of the communists because communists are big government, total government, and anarchists are no government. So the Tsar of Russia, Alexander II, the Tsar Liberator, who freed the serfs, is assassinated by anarchists. Franz Josef's wife, the Empress, is assassinated by anarchists while boarding a passenger boat. We have the King of Greece, who is walking in the park across from his palace, who is a set without bodyguards, who is assassinated by anarchists in 1913. And World War, the Great War, World War I, breaks out by an anarchist assassination. But this was building up because the British wanted the oil. And where was the oil in the Ottoman Empire? The oil-rich lands of the Ottoman Empire. The Berlin to Baghdad Railway had been built, and the Kaiser was going over to oil in his navy, and so were the British. And the British were not going to let him have those oil fields. So we say, who benefits? Qui bono in Latin. Show me who benefits, and I'll tell you who the perpetrator is. The war breaks out, and America is not involved for the first three, four years. It only comes in at the end to bail the British out. The Lusitania is set up by Churchill. And Britain goes into the war being the biggest creditor and comes out being the world's biggest debtor. But those at the top in Britain come out richer, thanks to the war, including the royal family itself. 1910, London is the world's most important city. In 1920, it becomes New York City. A whole generation of young men is lost. And the British pick up all the oil-rich countries of the Ottoman Empire. So people neglect to realize that when the war is won, the British Empire comes out 
bigger and richer because it now has the lands of the sick man of Europe, Ottoman Turkey. Um, it scoops up all of those lands which are oil rich. And the depression begins in Europe in 1918 at the war's end because all of Europe is bankrupt. The Great War has bankrupted and destroyed a generation of young men. And most of Europe becomes socialist because they have to buy the populations off and placate them. Three emperors are knocked off their thrones. Franz Joseph of Austria, the Tsar of Russia, and the Kaiser. And to be even more frightening, uh, something new takes a hold of Russia. Communism, which scares the world. And that is how the 20th century is born with the greatest and bloodiest war of all time. All right, so I want to try to do a clean division or a logical division between hour one and hour two. So why don't we get into the Great War or some of the aspects and make that the dividing line as we come into the truly modern era, which we'll get into in hour two. Anything you want to get in here, Jason, before he picks back up? Well, mentioning communism, who was responsible for getting the notes to Karl Marx that are attributed to him? The book that he would put out and all that, that was written by others and just attributed to him, was it not? Well, he had Frederick Engels and he had other people helping him. But Karl Marx was really a non sequitur. Um, it was actually Lenin that came in because the Kaiser put him on the train to go back and help topple Russia from the inside. Okay, I guess we can pick up on World War One. We're going to do roughly eight or nine minutes here, Fortune, and we're going to cut the first hour, take a short break, and we'll come back and we'll go as long as need be. The Roaring Twenties starts off with a bang because America is prosperous. It won the war, and it's the only industrial power in base. Uh, so America is prosperous, and all of the industrial um, workings of Europe are destroyed by the war. And Russia is knocked out because it goes communist. So life speeds up and morality lessens, and we call the 20s the lost generation. But every generation since World War One falls further and becomes weaker and weaker. During the 20s, Calvin Coolidge cuts the budget for the last time. The Great Depression happens, and people have to go back to core values, Victorian values. Uh, because most of the people alive during the Depression had been alive at that time, so they remembered how to live in a simpler way. 1933, we see the state of emergency, and every president has signed a continuation of that since then. We have fears of communism, Europe goes fascist, Hitler scares the Western powers, and there is an anti-war and isolation se isolationist sentiment in the United States and a resentment at having been tricked into World War I. There is great sympathy for Germany because Germany rebuilds its country and gets its economy and everyone starts working and is prosperous again. And people wonder why America and England cannot do that. Germany repudiates all war debt with the coming of Hitler and says no central bank. And we go into World War II, which I call While You Were Sleeping. Actually, I think this is a good cut point, Jason. 
for the first hour. When we come back, we're going to pick up at World War II, what Fortune just referred to as while you were sleeping. There's so many things that I've learned from Fortune, um, and it's not just stuff like this. Uh, the medical things alone blew my mind at first. I didn't know how to take it on board. I was kind of set back on my heels because I had to reframe what's actually possible. And I learned all that from Fortune. So with that, Jason, I'm going to wrap hour one, wherever we are on the clock. Is there anything more you want to get in before we do that and take a short break to come back and go the distance? I have a question I'd like to open hour two with because it might be lengthy. Where did Hitler get a lot of the funding to do what he did in the early days because Germany's economy was such a wreck? And I've seen things mentioned that he was a made man, if you will, that he was built up and had a lot of support from other sources. All right, Fortune, hold that in your mind, Jason, write down so that we can do this over. Is there anything you'd like to add to the closing of the first hour, Fortune? No, nothing. 15 minutes, 10 minutes break, how long? Yeah, we typically take 10 minutes so we can pee, grab a coffee. In Jason's case, two or three coffees. Uh, I'm joking. But anyhow, Fortune, thank you so much for that first hour. It's quite a thing. With that, I'm going to wrap up hour one of episode 526. Uh, hour one is free to everybody at pro777radio.com. That is C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. Members know to log in for the full episode. Members get access to all the forums. And there are hundreds at this point, if not thousands, I don't even know and comments under every episode, which is typically specific to that episode, as well as free access to the two-hour film called Shoot the Moon, which covers all my telescope work to include all the lunar waves and the double sun, which I suspect in the era we are moving into is going to become undeniable. With that, I would like to wish everyone a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era, and I hope to see you logged in as a member at crow777radio.com for hour two. This is sure to be a wild ride. There it is, man. Cheers.
enemies of knowing. <laughs>